Uh, Let's pray now as we come to read from God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Isaiah that we've been reading as a church and moments of speaking about judgment and darkness and sin, Lord God, moments of truth that we need to waken to and understand, but also moments of hope and light. And we praise you for those prophecies spoken over 700 years before Jesus was even born, prophecies that spoke so clearly about the life of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, and so prophecies that encourage us so deeply today. And Lord, that's my prayer this morning, that we would be called this morning to turn to you and to ask for your help, and that as we do that, we would know the help and salvation of Jesus Christ and be comforted by that help and salvation. Holy Spirit, come and move. Speak through me and speak to everyone watching this video that we might meet with you this morning to your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Job 34 verses 10 to 12 says this. Therefore, hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of a man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it before him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. My sermon this morning is about God's justice, about his goodness, about his righteousness. And because it's about God's goodness, because it's about God's righteousness, it's also about God's wrath upon the sin of humanity. I started with that Job quote because it speaks so plainly and clearly of the righteousness and justice of God in all his ways. But I could have chosen other passages as well. I could have chosen Psalm 97 verse 2, which says, Clouds and thick darkness are all around God. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Or I could have chosen Romans 12, verse 19, where it says, Do not take revenge yourself, beloved, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So this is not a light-hearted sermon. This is a sombre, serious sermon. You have heard it said over the past um, couple of months that we should protect ourselves from coronavirus, that we should observe social distancing. And and we, we agree with those instructions. We need to heed the warning and obey the instructions from our government. But we say this morning it's even more important that we heed the warning of God's wrath and that we flee to safety and seek security and sanctuary from God's wrath. I'm going to read 
from Isaiah chapter 9 and last week I preached a message of hope in the darkness, uh, sorry, light in the darkness and hope in the gloom, preaching from Isaiah 9 verses 1 to 7. Well this week I'm going to preach from the rest of chapter 9 and into the start of chapter 10 as well, where it's a message of judgment, a sermon, a passage, all about God's righteousness and justice and wrath upon sin. So let's read Isaiah 9 verse 8 to Isaiah 10 verse 4. Isaiah 9 verse 8 to Isaiah 10 verse 4. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob and it will fall on Israel and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the, the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honoured man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young, man, young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all his, this his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry. They devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment, in the ruin that will come for afar? To whom will you flee for help? And where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The second half of Isaiah chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 is a sombering message of God's wrath and judgment upon sin. And my sermon this morning has four parts. I want to preach four things to you this morning. Firstly, I want to preach this. What sin has Israel committed that causes God's wrath in Isaiah chapter 9? What are the sins of Israel that is causing God to pour out his wrath 
against the nation of Israel. That's part one. Part two is who is guilty of that sin? My third part is all about the righteous wrath of God. I want to highlight how God pours out his righteous wrath in this passage and what that means for the people of Israel. And fourthly, and finally, the fourth part of this sermon is how do we escape God's wrath? And so as I begin this sermon, I guess my encouragement to you is endure through the first three parts of this sermon. Part four is coming. There's going to be three parts which which are hard work, which are all about judgment, which are all about examining ourselves and recognising that we ourselves are sinners as well. But part four is coming. Hope is coming. An escape from the wrath of God is coming. So persevere. Hold on through the first three quarters of this sermon for the last quarter, which I hope will be encouraging to you. The truth is we cannot do justice to this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 without preaching on sin and guilt and wrath. And so those three part, those first three parts of the sermon are necessary to understanding what God's word says in Isaiah chapter 9 and 10. So firstly then, what sin has Israel committed that God is angry with them and wants to pour out his judgment upon them. What sin has Israel committed? Well, firstly, in Isaiah 9, verses 9 and 10, Israel has committed the sin of arrogance. The people of Israel speak in pride and have arrogance in their hearts. It says in the Bible, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the proud words that the Israelites are speaking reveal their arrogant hearts. And this is what they're saying. The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. They're saying this, we, in our strength, will repair our situation. In fact, our strength is so great. We are such excellent rebuilders that what we have later will surpass what we had previously. You know, dressed stones are better than bricks and cedars are better, more valuable trees than sycamores. And so the Israelites are saying, yes, yes, something difficult has come and our cedars have been cut down and our bricks have been thrown down, but we're going to go even better. We're so strong. We're so fantastic. We're so great. We're going to build with dressed stones and we're going to plant cedars in the place of the sycamores. You can hear the arrogance and the pride in the words that they're speaking. Uh, John Gill, a biblical commentator, puts it like this. They flattered themselves that they should be gainers and not losers by the Assyrian invasion, thus deriding the invasion and despising the prophecy concerning it. The Israelites have heard these prophecies about the Assyrian empire that's coming to invade, invade Israel. And they've heard those prophecies of God. They've heard that the Assyrian Empire is a judgment of God. And yet their response is to say, we are strong enough to recover from this situation. Even though this disaster's come upon us and things are going wrong, we're going to rebuild and we're going to be better than ever before. In other words, what they're saying is that their strength to recover is greater 
than God's word of judgment against them as a nation. Do do you hear that? When they say we will build with dressed stones, they're saying we are mighty to recover from God's judgment upon our land. And so what they're saying is full of pride and full of arrogance. And and what they're saying is revealing what's in their hearts, which which is pride and arrogance and a, a disregard for God's word and God's prophecies. So that's the first sin that Israel have committed, arrogance towards God. Now, that arrogance shows itself not just in the words that they're speaking, but also in their prayerlessness. And so the second way that Israel have sinned is by not turning to God. Have a look at verse 13, where it says this. The people did not turn to him who struck them nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So when when this disaster came upon the land of Israel, they did not turn in prayer to God and ask for his help. Rather, in their arrogance, they continued to rely on their own strength, saying, we will rebuild. We're not going to pray. We're not going to turn to God. We're not going to inquire of him. We're just going to keep going our own direction and keep doing what we're doing because we are strong enough to keep going. Now, I hope you can see that the right thing to do in that situation was to pray. The right thing was to say, Lord, help us. We are in the midst of disaster. The bricks have been destroyed. The bricks have fallen. The sycamores have been cut down. Lord, help us. That's how the Israelites should have responded in this scenario. But they don't do that. They do not turn to God. They do not inquire of the Lord of hosts. And that, again, it's not just their words, but it's their lack of prayer, which is showing just how arrogant and proud they really are. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we are guilty of that same arrogance too. When when coronavirus, the crisis of COVID-19, hits our country and our world, our response is to say, we will survive, we will thrive by our own strength. We're going to buy everything that we need. We're going to exercise daily to keep our, our bodies and our minds healthy. We're going to take up new hobbies. We're going to purchase new forms of entertainment. And all of this, all the things that we are doing will help us survive this crisis and even thrive during this crisis. I'm going to come out of this crisis fitter than ever before. I'm I'm going to come out of this crisis having enjoyed my time. In my strength, I will survive. I will thrive during the coronavirus crisis. And although none of those things are necessarily wrong, it's, it's good to exercise daily. It is good to take up new hobbies during this time if you've got additional time to take up hobbies. But that shouldn't be our first reaction to a crisis like coronavirus. Our, sh- our first reaction should be, wow, this is, this is going to be difficult. This is being described as a crisis. We need to pray. We need to call on the Lord. We need to pray, Lord. Help us. I I tell you the truth. If you're a Christian listening to this video this morning and coronavirus hasn't brought you to that place on your knees, praying, begging God to help you. If you're not on your knees on a regular basis during this time saying, Lord, help us. Then that betrays an arrogance in your heart, a pride in your life that you need to 
repent of, that you need to turn away from, because a true, humble Christian during this time would go to God in prayer and pray, Lord, help us. That's a daily prayer for me right now in my life. You know, as I wake up in the morning, I think, Lord, another day at home by myself. Lord, help me get through this day. Help me to honour you today. Help me to thrive today. When I look at the country and the number of people who are dying and the number of people who are contracting the disease, we need to be praying, Lord, help our country move mightily in our country, bring healing in this land. When I think of the church and think, this is another week where the church cannot gather, where we will not see one another face to face. I'm praying, help us, Lord. Help us stay faithful to you during this time. Help us to grow in this time. Help us to be more prayerful in this time. Help us to be bold in sharing the gospel in using digital means or on the phone through different means. Lord, help us. This is, it's sad that we cannot gather. It's hard that we cannot gather. Would you help us, Lord? The Israelites were arrogant, but God calls us to be humble. In fact, all of life should be covered in, in this prayer, Lord, help us. When we have difficulties in our job, or even when our job's going well, we should be praying, Lord, help me deal with this situation. Help my company, help, help us as a team get over this difficulty or thrive during this period. If you're having struggles in your family, if there are challenges in your family life, and there are always challenges in family life, there are always there's always someone in the family who's, who's not doing great or needs prayer. And so we should be praying for our families. Lord, help us in this time. Be a loving family. Be a caring family. Help me as a husband. Help me as a father. Help, help me as a, a wife or a mother. We should be praying all those prayers, praying for the Lord's help through our job, through our family life. We should be praying for our church. Lord, help us. I hope you're praying, Lord, help us at Christ Church Fair. And, you know, there can be an arrogance that comes with church planting. Pharaoh's going through a, a, a period of spiritual darkness where many, instead of turning to the Lord, are actually turning away and the, and the churches are, are struggling for the, for the last 10, 20, 30 years. I think it's fair to say that the churches in Pharaoh have struggled. And so we can come arrogantly as Christchurch Pharaoh and say, well, we're going to do church our way. We're going we're to build a church this way and that's going to save the town. But that is just so arrogant and proud. That is not true. It's not Christchurch Pharaoh who will save this town. It's God who's going to save this town. It's God who's going to move mightily. It's God who's going to change hearts. Now, he might choose to use Christchurch Fairham and what we're doing, and I pray that he does, but it's not us. It's not us saving the town. It's Jesus who saves the town of Fairham. And so we need to come humbly when we think of church. We need to pray humbly, Lord, help us move mightily. We, we should be praying daily for our town, for a great revival to come upon Fareham and the surrounding region that many would turn and believe in Jesus Christ. But if we're not doing it prayerfully, if we're not seeking revival prayerfully, then we're doing it arrogantly. And God opposes the proud. I want to emphasise this. Your proud heart, my proud heart, is exposed by our prayerlessness. When we don't pray, we are saying we can do this by ourselves. We can do this in our own strength. We can plant cedars in place of the sycamores. We can use dress stones in place of the bricks. 
but God calls us to be humble and it's sinful. It's opposing to God to be proud and full of arrogance. So if you're feeling that, that little that little push of conviction on this issue now. Repent and humble yourself today and pray for the Lord's help. Do not have a proud, arrogant heart, but turn to the Lord and inquire of the Lord of hosts and ask for his help. Because that's what the Israelites did not do. They were proud, they were arrogant, and they refused to turn to God and ask for his help. One more sin, one more sin that the Israelites were guilty of in this passage that I've read to you in Isaiah 9 and 10 is in chapter 10. And the first two verses of chapter 10, it describes the nation of Israel as those who have oppressed the needy. Richer, more powerful Israelites have robbed the poor and needy of their rights. Widows are not cared for and nor are the orphans. Israelites, instead of helping and caring and nurturing for those who are poor and needy, have oppressed and stamped down and and tried to take take what, what is their right from them in order that the powerful and the rich in Israel might thrive. God is love. And his hope for all humanity is that we would express God's love by caring especially for those who are poor and those who are in need. That's God's will, that's, the, that's part of the kingdom of God, a love for all and a care for all, especially those who are poor and needy. We must live that out as a church, a care and love for the poor and needy. But the Israelites in Isaiah 9 and 10 neglect the poor and needy, even oppressing them, stamping down, pushing down on them, depriving them of their rights. Again, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can say that we are guilty of that same oppression. By our buying habits and by our choosing to look after our own interests first, we neglect the poor and the needy. We rob the poor and the needy of their rights. We, I think we live in a society where those who are poorest and most needy in society are treated poorly and do need much more care. And we as Christians need to rise up and provide that care for those people. So what sins did the Israelites commit to to make God's wrath burn against them? They were arrogant and proud, firstly. They did not turn to God and inquire of him, secondly. And thirdly, they oppressed the poor and needy in their nation. Secondly, then, who is guilty of these sins, according to Isaiah chapter 9? Look with me at verses 14 to 16 in particular, because in those verses, the prophet Isaiah, God through the prophet Isaiah, says to Israel, firstly, it's the leaders who are guilty. It's the elders and the prophets who have led the people astray. The elders are described as the head and the um, prophets are described as the um, as the tail. And they have guided this people 
they have led this people astray. And so judgment will fall upon these leaders who have guided the nation of Israel so poorly in verses 14 to 16. And so let me say today, if you claim or want to be a leader, either in society or in the church, know that you will be judged more harshly. If you lead people astray, if you do not teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ in the church and you lead people to believe false gospels, then you will be judged terribly for that sin. And if you lead in society and you do so in a way that doesn't care for the poor and needy, then you will also be judged for that sin against society and against God. Lead Whenever these prophecies come against the nations of Israel and the other nations as well, there's always specific reference to the leaders themselves being judged for the way that they have led. I'm preaching to myself here as well. As, as, as a leader in Christchurch Fairham, I need to be very careful that I lead according to God's will, according to God's word, that I lead humbly, that I seek God's help in all that I do. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why we try and stick so closely to God's word when we preach and when we lead in this church. We know that it's humble to go to God's word and to submit to it and to teach it. And so we try our very best to always submit and teach this word in all that we do. And, and, and the primary reason personally that I seek to do that is because I know that a leader will be judged more harshly for the way they lead. And so I need to do everything I can to stay with this, to stick with this, to, to lead in this way in all that I do. So the leaders are guilty of the sin described in Isaiah chapter 9. But now have a look at verse 17, where it says this. The Lord does not rejoice over the, their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and their widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer. For every mouth speaks folly. So although the leaders in Israel are specifically mentioned and targeted in verses 14 to 16, in verse 17 it's made abundantly clear it's actually everybody who is guilty of sin. It's everybody who's been arrogant and proud. It's everyone who's spoken words that are foolishness. Even the orphans and the widows who have been oppressed by the society in which they've lived, they have not sought God. They have not turned to seek God help. They have stayed arrogant. They have spoken words of folly. Everyone in society, the young men, the fatherless, the widows, the prophets, the elders, the leaders, who is guilty in this passage of scripture? It's everybody. And that is actually reflected throughout the whole Bible. In Romans 3 verse 10, it says these humbling, sobering words, no one is righteous, not one. In Israel, everyone is guilty of the sin. And in the world, today, and throughout history, no one is righteous. Not one. And so the righteous wrath of God comes upon the nation of Israel. And that's the third part of this sermon, all about the righteous wrath of God. Have a look at the end of verse 12, not at chapter 9, verse 12, where it says, For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Have a look at verse 17, 9, 17, where it says, For all his anger, 
for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 21, where it says, for all this, God's anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Have a look at the end of chapter 10, verse 4, where it says, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. This is the repeated chorus of this prophecy. For all this, God's anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still four times in the space of one passage of scripture, God's anger is described. And the fact that it's his hand that is outstretched in executing judgment upon the land of Israel. This is the central idea of this passage, that God is wrathful. His anger does not turn away from sin. And his hand is outstretched to execute justice upon sin that is committed, upon the arrogance of the Israelites, upon the pride of the Israelites, upon their prayerlessness. The hand of the Lord is stretched out upon their oppression of the poor and needy in the land of Israel. The hand of God's wrath is stretched out upon the nation of Israel. And against all who commit such sins against the Lord God. Right at the beginning of this sermon, I read from the book of Job and I read from the Psalms and I read Bible verses that spoke of God as righteous and just. God is righteous and God is a just judge. This is a central doctrine to the Bible. It's central to our faith as Christians that the God who reigns from heaven is righteous and just. He is good and fair in all that he does. And his wrath and anger described four times at least in this passage, if not more, because some of the other verses also speak about the Lord raising up adversaries or the Lord um, striking the people of Israel. There's lo- the Lord is very active in the judgment described in Isaiah chapter 9. So many times in this passage, the wrath of God is described. And it's important that we realise that God's wrath, God's anger against sin, stems from his goodness and his righteousness. It is because God is just that he must punish sin. It's because God is a fair judge that he must punish wrongdoing and evil. Some of you, if not all of you, will not like this teaching. We get uncomfortable talking about God's righteous wrath against sin. It's the kind of teaching that sometimes you just kind of brush over in a sermon or you kind of reference briefly. But we don't talk about it as often as the Bible talks about it in our churches today. We're uncomfortable about it and we don't like it. And there's two reasons why we don't appreciate the importance of this doctrine and we don't like talking about it. It, There's two reasons why we get uncomfortable talking about God's wrath upon sin. Uh, And the first reason is that our perception of sin is too small. We tend to use ourselves as a measuring stick of how bad someone's behaviour is. 
So we, we tend to say, I'm largely a good person. And so if I struggle with pride and with arrogance and with prayerlessness, and sometimes I don't care for the poor and needy as well as I should, then, well, you know, it's not that bad, really. It's a bit harsh of God to pour out his wrath upon those kinds of sins. And what we're doing when we do that is we're saying, my measuring stick, my rules, I'm the standard of goodness in this world. And and so anyone who's worse than me, they probably do deserve to get punished. But anyone who's as good as me or better, they're they're all right. God shouldn't punish those people because I'm largely a good person. God shouldn't punish me. Unfortunately, that's, that's not true. God is the standard of what's right and good. He is the author of morality. And so he decides where the, where the measuring line is. He decides what's right and what's wrong. And the reason we tend to perceive our sin as too small is, is secondly, because our perception of God's perfection is tainted. We think of our sin as small and not deserving of judgment because our vision of how perfect God is, is tainted. We think little of God's glory. We do not consider that God is the giver of every good gift, that he is the sustainer of life itself. And for that reason, it's right to rely on him in prayer through all things. We cannot take a breath without the blessing of God in our lives. And so how arrogant is it to go through life's difficulties without praying for his help and asking for his sustenance? We do not meditate on the fact that God is truth, that he, everything he says is true and perfect. And so we don't think about small little lies as, as that bad. But compared to the truthfulness and glory of God's truth, lies are a terrible thing. We do not consider that God is the creator of all people, that every single person on this earth, God knows how many hairs are on their head. He knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. He knows their struggles. He knows the things going on. He cares and loves deeply every single person, including you this morning, but including others in this world as well. God cares for every single person. We do not consider that. And therefore, we don't think it's important to care for the needy or oppressed in society. But God created them and he loves them and he cares for them. So it's a terrible sin to neglect those people whom God has created. When we consider the majesty and the glory and the perfection of God, we start to get a better perception, a better perspective on how significant our sins really are. When we fail to look after or care for someone, we're saying, God, you didn't do, a, you didn't do an important thing and you didn't do a good job of creating that person and therefore they don't need my care. When we fail to pray, we're saying, you're not really sustaining me. You're not really helping me. You're not really the king of all. And, and so we're full of pride. We're denying God who he really is in those sins. It is the glory and perfection of God that determines the magnitude and seriousness, seriousness of sin, not our own personal measuring stick. Every sin, however small we perceive it to be, would undermine God's perfection if he simply overlooked it. If he said, I'm, good, I'm just going to overlook that sin and you can come into my kingdom, that would undermine God's perfection and the perfection of the kingdom that God is establishing on earth. 
And so it's because of God's perfection. It's because of God's goodness. It's because of his justice. It's because of his righteousness that he is wrathful against sin. It is a glorious thing that God gets angry against sin. He hates evil because he is so good. He, he has to bring justice because he is the just judge. For all these reasons, his anger is not turned away at our sin or the sins of the Israelites, and his hand is stretched out still. And so fourthly and finally, we arrive at a moment of hope. We arrive at this fourth question. How do we escape God's wrath? And the answer to that question is is the opposite of the sins Israel committed in point one. Instead of being arrogant, in order to escape God's wrath, we need to be humble to confess our sin. To say God, say to God, I have sinned against you, and previously I perceived my sin to be small, but now I realise in light of your goodness and your perfection and your righteousness that my sins were against you, Lord God, and that makes them extremely significant. And therefore, I humbly confess my sin to you, Lord. Instead of being arrogant, we need to be humble. Instead of ignoring God, we need to turn to him and seek his help. Pray now. Whether you consider yourself a Christian or a non-Christian, pray now in your heart. Say it out loud if it helps. Lord, help me. And the truth of the good news of Christianity is that God has sent help in the person of Jesus Christ. In his death upon the cross, Jesus bore the wrath of God. God's hand of justice was stretched out against Jesus Christ on the cross in order that God's anger, God's wrath might turn away from us and be put instead onto Jesus Christ. That's the only way God could be just and yet could turn his anger away from those of us who have sinned against him. When Jesus Christ died as a substitute in our place, God's anger was poured out on him instead of upon us. And so if you believe in Christ this morning, God's anger has been turned away from you, turned to Christ. God's hand is not stretched out in anger at you. It was stretched out upon Christ at the cross. If you do not believe in Christ, God's wrath is still directed towards you. For you have sinned. You have been arrogant and proud. You have not looked after those who are in need. You have not turned to the Lord in prayer. And so God's anger is still upon you, just like it was upon Israel in Isaiah chapter 9. God's wrath is still upon you. But if you would believe in Christ and accept the forgiveness of Christ secured for us on the cross, secured for us in his death on the, on the cross and his resurrection from the dead in glory, if you would believe in Christ, God's anger would turn and not be upon you, but instead be upon Christ, that you might be free that you might enter into the kingdom of God, that your sin would be taken away, that you would be blameless and forgiven in the sight of God. So now, no, don't just pray, Lord, help us, but pray, Jesus, save me. Jesus, 
save me. And when you pray that prayer, know that God's anger and wrath is taken away from you for it was carried and experienced by Jesus Christ upon the cross in your place. Jesus in love died as a substitute in your place. That's the good news of Christianity. The help of God in the person of Jesus Christ who died in our place, who took God's wrath upon himself in our place. So how should we apply this sermon this morning? We need to be humble. Lord God, break pride in our church, break pride in our hearts, take away arrogance and make us humble, Lord God. We need to seek God's help. We need to seek God's help in salvation by trusting in Christ. And we need to seek God's help in all things. Our lives should be filled and covered with Lord, help me prayers over and over again, knowing that God sustains us, that God helps us, that God is all powerful and almighty and that his help is greater than anything else in this world. Those are two things we need to do. Be humble and seek God's help. But can I add one more thing? We need to love the poor and the needy. Jesus showed such love for us upon the cross. He died in our place. He loved us so much. He died in our place. He showed such love for us. Let us also show his love by caring for others and especially those who are poor and in need. And I say that just because we're in lockdown, that is no excuse for not loving the poor and needy at this time as well. We need to pray for the poor and the needy at this time. We need to say, Lord, help them in love. Pray prayers, Lord, help them. We also need to be financially generous to charities and organisations and to people supporting those who are poor and in need. We need to be generous. We need to give. Lots of those charities are struggling. As the economy goes into a downturn, they're going to have less money. And we Christians need to rise up and be generous, showing the love of Christ by being generous with our money to support the poor and needy in this country, in our town and in this country and in the world even. And finally, we need to explore ways in which you can help. And and because of different circumstances, we'll all be able to help in different ways. But there may be some people who are able to volunteer to help support some of these charities and organisations. Or maybe it's just about looking and caring after the needy people in your street. We've made contact with um, over 100 people on our road by putting a little note through their doors saying, if you need anything, if you need shopping, if you need a conversation, come and contact us here's my mobile number we need to as christians love the poor and needy especially in this time and and i pray today that you would find opportunities to do that during lockdown let each of us be humble seek god's help and love the vulnerable those who are in need let's pray lord god we confess this morning that we have sinned. We have been proud. We have been arrogant. Our words have been proud. We've said that we can do things without consulting you and seeking your help. We confess a lack of prayer in our lives, Lord God. Sometimes we will go for a day and we will not pray. And in doing so, we are being proud. We're We're communicating that we do not need you when we don't pray, Lord God, and we are so sorry. We desperately need you, God. You are our help in times of trouble. We desperately, desperately need your help. We confess that we have not 
helped the poor and the needy, and even by our buying habits and carelessness, we have oppressed the poor and needy in this country. And so we ask for your forgiveness. And we pray, Lord, help us. Jesus Christ, save us. We, we know that you're righteous and good and that your wrath is, is, a, is an outpouring of your goodness and your righteousness, Lord God. You are right to be angry upon sin and you're right to be angry at our sin. And so we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ once again and we thank you for his sacrifice on the cross. We say Jesus carried our sin and bore your wrath on our behalf that we might be forgiven and free. And we are so grateful. Thank you, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us. Jesus, save us this morning, I pray. And finally, I pray for the Holy Spirit's help. Lord, help us be humble. Help us rely on you in prayer through all things and help us love the poor and needy surrounding us, Lord God. Help us by your Holy Spirit to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, to live the life that Christ lived, to follow his example by being humble, by seeking your help and by loving the poor and needy. Help us, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.